Well, good morning, Timberline. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to read it in a minute. But this psalm is, uh, well, really the, the title of my message is Transforming Grace. And um, it's a psalm that reminds us that God's steadfast love that his, and His abundant mercy frees us from the crushing weight of guilt and shame that is caused by our sin. And so today, uh, this, this psalm comes out of a very dark uh, moment and period in David's life. In fact, the, the very title of the psalm says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. In other words, after he had committed adultery to Bathsheba, and with Bathsheba, and Nathan comes in and confronts him uh, because of his sin. And so that's the, the backdrop of this psalm. So uh, if you're in your living rooms, you can stand with me and just read the Word of God and from Psalm 51. Uh, it begins by saying this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. For behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Bless the, the teaching and preaching of your word this morning. May you cause our own hearts to be convicted of sin and you would cause us to come to you, God, in your abundant mercy and find healing and hope and help. May you cleanse us, Father. May we, may we be encouraged today and blessed today through this psalm, Psalm 51. In your name we pray. Amen. This message today, in many ways, is it, it, what I'm praying for, I should say, 
is for you, that, that this message would be for, for you possibly if, you've, if you haven't thought much about the seriousness of your sin. Or, or maybe you know that it's serious, but, but may, maybe, maybe you've wandered a bit and you've kind of cozied up to sin in your life. Um, this psalm, this psalm brings us face to face and the backdrop of this psalm brings us face to face with the reality of and the magnitude of our sin. This psalm also in this message today is for those who, those who might think that they are too high or too holy, uh, too good uh, to actually uh, truly fall in a really serious way. Uh, we're reminded in scripture uh, of the reality of people's lives, even leaders, even no pastor, no leader, no president, no senator, no congressman, no community member, no father, no mother, no son, no daughter, that no one is too high or too above um, falling and falling greatly. This psalm is also, however, in this message for those who haven't fallen, um, feel like it's impossible to actually get back up to actually be restored, that having, having had your heart broken and your life burnt, you know, broken to bits by sin, the crushing weight of sin, that, that, that oftentimes we think that we have fallen so far uh, that we can't get back up. And this message today brings us face to face with the reality of God's transforming grace that does fully restore us. Um, so this psalm is for those who think that maybe, maybe your sin, maybe your, your actions are beyond the reach of God's grace, beyond the reach of His forgiveness. But not only beyond that, but, but this message hopefully will help you wrestle with, um, even, even if you do accept God's transforming grace and are forgiven, uh, that, that sometimes we actually think that we are beyond being fully restored to, to be useful to both God and to the church and to our communities and to our homes. And so, with that in mind, uh, we turn to Psalm 51. But in reality, in order to understand Psalm 51, I just have to point you to the backdrop of it, which was in the little epilogue or the beginning of this, uh, this psalm, which is the, the story back in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And in 2 Samuel, and I'm going I'm to give a really big overview, and so you'll have to just read it if you want to know the, the very specific details. But this is the fast version of what forms the, the, the flow of this out of David's heart, the flow of this psalm. Uh, David uh, got caught in a moment where he wasn't really paying attention to his job. In fact, in fact, if, if you want to describe what was going on maybe in David's heart, you could describe what's maybe going on to many of us in the church even right now. That, that there are things that distract us at times. There are things that we should be focused on, that the mission that God has for us is over here, and we should be fully engaged and fully uh, with God, fully engaged in the mission that God has for us. But sometimes, not sometimes, oftentimes, and certainly in these times, 
we can easily find ourselves and the enemy has a great strategy to get us to think that this is really the issue over here, some other thing or some other battle, some political tension or some, some election or some little uh, you know, disagreements about this or that. And we can often be over here fighting battles, being, being totally distracted when the real, the real thing is over here, God's calling us to. And, and this is where David was at. He was distracted. He wasn't, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing And in that moment of not doing what he should have been doing, not being engaged in what God had called him to do, instead, in his idleness, he goes up to the roof of his palace one day and he spots a woman on her roof bathing and his heart is immediately captured. And instead of fleeing from that moment and knowing his own heart and, and going away, he entertains these feelings And one thing leads to another. And because he's king, he goes and has people get her and bring her to his palace. And he commits adultery with her. And the way sin works is that once we cozy up to it, once we entertain it, sin is an incredible thief. It steals everything from us. It it actually promises the moon but disappoints every time. And not only disappoints, but it just takes us down further and further into this spiral. And so once we begin to entertain it, once David, instead of turning away from that sin, once he took a step towards it, he was already in trouble. Just like you and me in our sin. Once we begin to entertain it, once we we begin to cozy up to it, and we don't see it as the great thief that it really is, then, then we begin to move towards it. And David did that. And it took him on a death spiral because one thing led to another. He committed adultery. He finds out she's pregnant. He sets up, tries to, tries to then, instead of just simply stopping and confessing that he's blown it, that he's gone too far, instead of taking care of what he should have taken care of, then he tries to set up a scenario where the child will be seen as her husband's child, Uriah, who's off in the battle that David actually should be engaged in as well. And so he, he sets this whole scheme up. It doesn't work out. He ends up having to, to then make the ultimate, the final part of his little scheme, which is he had Uriah killed in battle. And so now he's committed adultery. There's a child involved. And now he's had her husband murdered. And so this is where David's at. Um, this is what sin does to us when we, when we just let it take us down this spiral. It robs everything from us. And so God in his mercy, however, this is how God is good to us. We often reject these things in our lives, but the reality is God in his mercy sends Nathan, a trusted friend and a prophet, sends him to David to confront him to call him out on his sin. And he does. And he calls him out and says, David, you're the man. You're the one who has sinned against God. You're the one who's done this despicable thing. And David's response is instructive for us. David responds in repentance and faith. He turns to Nathan uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. There's this incredible thing. He turns to Nathan. He confesses that he has sinned to God. And Nathan declares that God has forgiven your sin. It's an incredible moment. But before we get into Psalm 51, 
having thought about that for a moment, let's just, let's just play something out for a minute. Let's say you're, you're Uriah's father or mother. And Uriah, your son, has been set up by the king and killed. And you're Uriah's father, and you hear that God has simply forgiven David, who's murdered your son. He's forgiven him of this sin. What would your response be to that? I know what my response would be. That doesn't seem just or fair at all. How, how is it that, that the judge of all the earth can simply just, just forgive? Just say, you're forgiven, David. If, if you and I were in the court of law and we were sitting there and the judge was on the stand and here's somebody who's murdered our child and the, 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 the person simply says, you're right, I did it. I'm sorry, and the judge says, all right, um, well, then you can go free. You're, you're, uh, you're acquitted of this crime, and you can just go free. There would be all, it'd be all over the front page. This judge would be completely kicked out of the courts. It would not be right or just by anybody's standard, and it doesn't certainly seem that way by God's either. So how is it that God can forgive David and have it actually be right? Well, we find out in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 and 26, where it, it actually talks about, let me just read it for you this morning, it talks about how it is that God can actually be just, that is, judge accurately, and yet be the justifier of those who come to Him by faith. It says in, in Romans chapter 3, it says that God put forth... Jesus as a propitiation, that is a substitute, a, a sin-bearing, a wrath-bearing, um, a substitute by His blood, that is by His death on the cross, to be received by faith. And he says this was to show God's righteousness because, and here's where this applies to David and all of those in the Old Testament, because in His, that is God's divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. So in the Old Testament, they would sprinkle the blood, they would, they would sacrifice animals, they would sprinkle the blood over the people, and it was called an atonement. It covered over, but it did not remove the fully, it wasn't satisfying ultimately of the sin and the guilt of, this, of, the, of the worshiper, of the, of the person. It simply covered over, it made atonement for the person. So how is it then that David will ultimately be acquitted and every Old Testament person in the Old Testament be acquitted or let or forgiven of their sins. Well, he says this, that it was because of Jesus. See, God passed over him in the Old Testament, but he says it, it was to show in verse 26 his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be both just, that is accurate in his judgments, and and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So the reason why David can be forgiven and God not be thrown off the stand to be a horrible judge and he could actually be just and gracious, it's where is because of Jesus. It's because of the he's the propitiation, the, the substitute, the sacrifice in our place, absorbing our punishment for our sin. So therefore, in the cross, both God's justice is upheld 
that sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. And yet, and yet God's mercy is upheld because he takes upon his son, upon himself, the penalty for our sin. And therefore, instead of us, instead of David receiving wrath and judgment and death, instead he gets mercy and acquittal. God upholds his justice, but also shows mercy. And this is why David can be forgiven. And so the death of Jesus actually reaches back into the Old Testament and also um, it saves those Old Testament sinners by grace, just like you and I. And so this is the backdrop of Psalm 51. And in fact, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 actually actually gives us sort of the, here's the facts of what happened that led up to this. But, but what we're going to find in Psalm 51 now, as we turn there, it's out of this experience of, of sin. It's out of this whole experience that David writes this psalm. And so this psalm actually represents not just a sort of listing of the facts, but now we get to see David's heart. We get to see the inward wrestling and struggle with sin, and we get to see how God's grace and his mercy transforms David's life and heart and also us as well. And so we see an example here of how we are to respond um, when we too have sinned against God. And so he begins this this psalm in verses 1 and 2 with a plea for forgiveness. He, and his plea is, is to God. He goes to God, who's the only one who can actually relieve him of his guilty conscience. His, his conscience was weighing him down because of sin, and he knows that the only place he can go is to God. I think oftentimes we actually do it the opposite. We, we think that when we have blown it, we're like, oh man, God doesn't want anything to do with me. But, but the scripture is actually the opposite. It, in fact, Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is such a high priest that, that, when, that we're to come to him in our moments of weakness and find comfort or rest for our souls, find mercy, right? It doesn't say come to him when everything is always put together. It says come to him when things are falling apart. Come to him with a broken heart and God will, will heal and restore and forgive. And this is what David does. He knows his God. In fact, let me, one pastor put it this way. He says, on what basis does David come in verses one and two and ask for mercy? On what basis does he come? Does he come? Does he appeal to his track record as king? Does he, does he remind God and others of how many psalms he's written that have been a blessing to the people of Israel? Does he cite his faithful service or marshal uh, together a whole bunch of character witnesses to sort of parade through and talk about, you know, for the most part, he's a good guy? No. He doesn't expect to be forgiven or acquitted on the basis of any of this. Not, not on the basis of his sincerity or his spiritual intensity or the depth of the pain that he's had because of sin or his fervor of heart. No, none of those kinds of things. That's not to say that those things wouldn't be bad, like sincerity and zeal and conviction. But David's appeal to God is based on what he knows of God's mercy and God's steadfast love. Notice in verses 1 and 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. 
Now, I, I can't state that strong enough. And when we read it in English, we have mercy on me, O God. But it literally is David crying out to God out of the anguish of his soul. He's coming to God. He's, he's, he's committed adultery and he has murdered her husband. I mean, he is coming out of utter anguish and destitution and he comes to God and he says, have mercy on me, O God. He's crying out to God. And what is the basis of this plea to God for mercy? He says, according to your steadfast love. That is God's abiding love, his abundant love. And he says, according to your abundant mercy. That mercy is that we don't get what we deserve. David deserves death. He deserves to be put to death. In fact, the Old Testament law would have demanded it. That would have been just. And he's coming to God, pleading for God's mercy according to God's steadfast love, according to God's abundant mercy. He says, blot out, take away completely my transgressions, my sins. Wash me, he says, thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He uses those different words, transgression, iniquity, and sin. They are all speaking of this, of this wickedness, this evil that has been committed in, in every aspect of, of it, in every single way. He says, wash me. So he's saying, God, uh, blot out my transgressions. He's saying, um, wash me and cleanse me from this sin that I have committed and so the basis of this plea is God's steadfast love. That's his only hope, is God's love, God's mercy, uh, his abundant mercy. That is his only hope. So then he turns and says, in one sense, he confesses to God his sin. He confesses, he doesn't just confess his sin, but he, he confesses it in such a way that it helps us understand his understanding of how, of the depth of his sin, of how deep and how destructive and how, uh, how horrible his sin actually is. He says, for, or the reason why, the, re the basis, not the basis, but the reason he's pleading to God for this, he says, because I know, I love that, just, I know, I know my transgressions and my sins my sin is ever before me. What David's saying there is he's saying, he's saying, I know God that my sin is constantly before me. He's saying my heart and my life is weighed down by this sin. It won't go away. Pe people try in their life. Many of us are trying. We do it all the time. We try to find ways to appease our conscience, to ease our guilt. When, we've, when we have sinned and wronged somebody or we've sinned, in any way, we find all these ways basically to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to, to find relief. And David is saying, I can't find relief. My sin is constantly in front of me. It's staring me in the face. As the Old Testament would say, my, your sins will find you out. They'll catch up to you. And David is saying, they won't go away. And then he confesses and shows the depth of the, why is his sin so serious? He says, it's against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, David acknowledges first and foremost that his sin is ultimately, even though he, he committed that sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, ultimately because he sinned 
against them who are made in the image of God, ultimately he has offended the God who made them. He has completely offended the highest, the, the, most, the most ultimate in the universe, which is God himself. And he says to God, it's against you only. It's as if sinning against your, your neighbors or your brothers and your sisters, it's as if sinning against them, David is saying it's ultimately a sin against you and you only, God, which is, which is the ultimate picture of our sin. He says, so that, he says, it's against you and you only that I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that, this is interesting, so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, our sin ultimately proves God right in his judgments. That God's assessment is accurate and our sin just proves it. We often as men, we're, we're going around sort of trying to uphold our credentials, right? We're trying to put ourselves forward as something that we're not. And we're, we're sort of uh, uh, trying to justify ourselves. And, and in that, we just constantly fall flat on our face and we're sinning against God. And our sin just simply proves God's judgments to be right. And David even goes further. He acknowledges a doctrine of the church for years, the doctrine of, uh, of depravity, the doctrine of the fact that we've been born in sin. He says, behold, I was brought forth, I was born forth, I was, I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The fact that we come into this world since the fall of Adam and Eve, Every one of us enter on the same footing. We come into this world in sin and in need of redemption. And so David says, my sin is always before me. My sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah is ultimately a sin against you, God, which is an ultimate sin, which deserves absolute punishment and justice. And then he says, and not only that, but this sin that I committed is, is because I am sinful. I was born in sin. It's a part of my nature. And so he says, and behold, God, this is where he shows the contrast. Here's David saying, I'm born in sin, but you, God, you are completely the opposite of us. He says, but you, God, in verse 6, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. I am born in sin, David's saying, but God, you love truth. You teach wisdom in the secret place. God is completely opposite of us. I want to just pause for a moment and just ask you, have you ever, when you sin, when you, when you think about your sin, do you think about it in this way? I think oftentimes we don't take our sin very serious because we don't realize that our sin is ultimately a sin against God. And not only is it a sin against God, but as we continue to entertain it, it just plunges us into this deep, dark hole. That the sin against God, in fact, it is, it is, as I said a little bit ago, it's a thief and a robber. It robs everything of benefit and value and worth to you, ultimate worth. It takes it all away from you. In fact, we're going to see here in these next verses from the rest of this psalm, from seven, verse 7 and on, we can see because of what what. David is going to ask for restoration. He's, he's going to ask to be restored, to be renewed. 
That means that sin has stolen these things from him. It has, it has put a wall up and he's, he's saying, God, please restore these things back to me. Give, bring back to me the very things that sin is seeking to steal and to, to, keep, or to, to take away from me. And so, so sin, sin we can see here, and I'll just go through some of the things uh, from verses 7, just looking at the opposite of what, what David's going to call for being restored. Sin, it, it took, has completely tainted everything about him. He says, he says, wash me with, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. In other words, you have to be dirty in order to need this cleansing. And so it causes our own souls to be filthy, to be tainted. He says, let me hear joy and gladness, meaning that sin, sin robs joy and gladness from us and it leads us to sorrow and grief and suffering and depression. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, sin actually physically harms our physical bodies. And we can see this in Psalm 32 and other places in the Psalms where we see the psalmist is so weighed down by his sin that he, he, he finally says, I confessed my sins and then God forgave the sin of my heart and I found relief, physical relief. And you, you've experienced this in your life. And so we, we, we find that physical anguish also is the result of sin. We also find separation. He, he says, hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Um, and he talks about, he does, do not cast me away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Sin Sin separates us from God. Sin brings, uh, brings a, a sense of not only separation from God, it not only harms our relationship with God, but sin harms our relationship with other people. It, it, it causes our relationships to be broken. And you experience this, I experience this all the time. And, and David is going to plead with God to restore uh, this, his presence to him. It, sin causes us to be distraught within. It takes away joy. It, it also takes away our ministry. It causes us to be distracted. Sin calls us, uh, robs from us the, the real joy of being with God on mission. Doing what we're supposed to be doing. This is what led David to the problem in the first place. He wasn't doing what God had called him and commissioned him to do. Instead, he was idle with his time. He was over here distracted and all of a sudden chaos happened. Sin distracts us and takes away the ability for us to truly do the ministry that God has called us to. It steals our ability to joyfully, freely worship and praise God with a pure heart. It causes our worship to be corrupt, to be cheapened, to be just a, a, an action. We just do it. We sing songs. We take communion. We go through the motions and it causes it just to be some rote thing. And David is saying, God, God, my sin has, has tainted all of these things. God, the last part of this psalm is just saying, God, would you please restore me? He pleads with, pleads with God, God, please restore me and renew my spirit. He begins, and we'll just walk through this, all the things that he asked for. He says, first and foremost in verse 7, to purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was, a, was a, a, basically these branches, uh, of a, a plant where there's these branches from a tree that they would actually uh, use to dip into the blood 
and the sacrifices in the temple, they would dip it into the blood of the, the sacrifice and they would use it to sprinkle over the people. It was, it, was, it was the way in which atonement was made, in which their sins would be covered. Now, we remember, um, it would only be covered. It wouldn't be fully removed because it's not until Jesus comes that they're fully removed. But David is simply pleading with God, God, would you please uh, purge these things with hyssop? Cause your blood to be, the blood of your sacrifice to be sprinkled over me that we might be clean, that we might be whiter than snow. He says, would you restore to me um, joy? In fact, he says this in verse 8 and he says it in verse 12. He says he asked for joy to be restored. Uh, that, that he says, um, let me hear joy and gladness. Um, verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, sometimes we lose sight. We lose appreciation. We, we lose the awe that God, of standing in awe of the fact that God has shown us such mercy and such grace. And so David's realized that his sin has distracted him and stolen from him the joy of God's salvation. And so he says, God, please restore joy to my soul. He pleads for God not to see his sin any longer. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquities. Take them all away. He, he, he hates it. You can sense in verse 9, he's the sense of like, God, I don't, I don't even want you to see this utter sinfulness that I have had. He doesn't want anything to do with God. Please don't even look upon my sin. Don't see it. And then he cries out to God, verse 10, which is a verse that many of us know. There's been a song made of this. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, creating me a clean heart. He's not simply just wanting forgiveness, but he's saying, God, restore in me a right heart that desires the right things, that longs for the right things, that looks to you, that, that, that this, this sense in which this has been broken and cut off. He's saying, God, renew, it created me this clean heart heart, a heart that is right with you, a heart that is forgiven, a heart that is transformed. Renew a right spirit within me. And then he says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, um, the, the Spirit of God did not dwell in every believer. The Spirit of God came and, and anointed people with different moments with, with the ability to do their job. Like David was anointed king and the Spirit of God, it says, came upon him but it's not, until, it's not until the New Testament, until Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, that the Spirit of God, the fulfillment of what Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, that, that they said in the New Covenant, I'm going I'm to form a new covenant with my people. And he says, I'm going to put my Spirit in them so that they will obey, so that they will um, be, uh, be my people. And so that doesn't come until Pentecost. And so, so David is, is saying that his sin... That in the Old Testament, his sin actually, uh, the Spirit of God, um, is it becomes distant, right? That he's saying, "Don't take your Spirit from me. Don't don't remove from me the anointing that that came upon me from your Spirit. Don't cast me from your presence, God." He's pleading with God, "Please be present with me, God. Please be here in the midst of this." Um, and then in verse thirteen, uh, he oh, I love what he says in verse twelve. He says, "Restore the joy of my salvation." But then he says, or, and put in me or uphold me with a willing spirit. Give me a willing spirit. I love that prayer. You, you and I can try to muster up the ability or the desire to, to please God. 
But the reality is we need God to put his spirit in us that we would be willing, that he would do. And he's praying, God, would you please give me a willing spirit, a, a spirit that desires the right things, that longs to be in your presence. Verse 13 is a beautiful one. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He's praying for God to restore his ability to minister. You see, I think this is a powerful moment because I think sometimes we think that our sin is so bad that there's no way that we can minister, that, that, that it's gone, like we've gone so far away that God can't use us. Even when we wrestle and we, we feel like, yeah, God can forgive me, but, but I'm done. Uh, this is so bad. And here, here we see David saying, as a result of this restoration and this renewing of his soul and this renewing of his spirit, as the result of that, he says, is that then, then I will once again, in essence, I will teach transgressors your ways. I will testify of your goodness. I will call sinners to repentance. I will minister to the people again. God can restore not only our soul and our spirit and make us right with him, but God also can restore ministry. In fact, he can use, God uses every little detail of our lives, every struggle, every challenge. He uses all of it um, to minister to others through us. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my, of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's, he's thanking God. The blood guiltiness is, is like, if you, if, if you take life, then your life must be taken. God has given David mercy, that he's not going to receive what he deserves. And the only way that that can be fair and right, as we said earlier, is because Jesus is the one who received that punishment. Jesus took that upon him, and so David's life is spared. God saves him and rescues him. This is what God does for every one of us. This is what he has done in Christ for every single one of us who by faith have trusted in him. He, he has saved us from getting the, the right and just judgment that we deserve. Instead, we get mercy and grace and love. It's because of God's steadfast love. And he restores the psalmist's praise. He restores a right worship. You see at the end of this, he says, for you don't, you don't delight in sacrifices. God doesn't, God doesn't delight in our little going through the motions. It's not the actions. It's not the act of coming to church and singing songs and reading scripture and praying to God and, and celebrating communion. It's not the act itself. It is the heart that matters. And David is, is saying that God not only restores our ministry, he, he not only rescues us from sin and death, the result of that is, though, is that he also restores our worship to be right worship, to, be, to, be, to offer right sacrifices, which ultimately in the New Testament is our own selves to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. And He comes to the very end of this, and He gives the epilogue in verses 18 uh, and 19. But before that, in verse 17, He says, The sacrifices of God, this, is, this proves that He's not into just the physical sacrifice. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
That means that God does despise arrogant, haughty, pompous hearts. And those whom God does not despise are those who come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Those who come recognizing their absolute need for grace and mercy. That's whom God delights in. That's what God wants. He will not despise every one of us here today who come to him in this sense of need. Come to him in humility. Uh, I think humility is something lacking in our culture these days. We need, as Christians, to be humble, to, to, to know that we don't deserve anything from God, that He has been so gracious to us. And those who have, been, who have received so much from God that we don't deserve, how can we possibly be those who are arrogant and haughty and pompous, right, and boastful out there? No, no, that... God says what he delights in is those who have a broken and contrite heart. And God is the restorer of such people. His grace is sufficient and ultimately sufficient because of Christ. As we saw in Romans 3, he closes this off with just a statement about God's, about God's restoration. He says, God, do good to Zion. In your good pleasure. In other words, be good to your people. Build up the walls around Jerusalem for your people. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. What are right sacrifices? He just told us in verse 17. It's the heart, not the action. And then burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then he goes to the altar. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. Bulls were like the ultimate sacrifice. Because for someone to give up a bull... That was a big deal. And so, so he's saying, he's showing basically that, that when, when our heart, when our spirits are restored and God's mercy washes over us and removes our sin, then, then right worship is, is offered to God in his temple. And, um, and this, is, this is what David is longing for. Friends, um, how about you today? Have you come to grips with the seriousness of your sin on a daily basis? And, and equally so, however, have you also, having realized that your sin against God is serious, have you, have you also just come to see that God is so gracious and good, that God has provided for us the ultimate sacrifice because our sin is against Him and He is ultimate Jesus, however, is the ultimate sacrifice that has come on our behalf and stood in the gap. He is the propitiation, the, the wrath bearer that absorbs God's wrath for us, that we might be fully forgiven and fully restored. And, and this, is, this is something that happens to us sometimes in very big ways, but even in small ways right here today, whatever, whatever things that the Spirit of God convicts us of, we can take those to God, we can take those to the cross, and we can confess those sins. We don't have to be ashamed or afraid. We, and, and, and we can confess those sins to God, knowing that Jesus has purchased and paid for those sins. And we can be set free from our guilt and shame. It is only because of God's steadfast love that is ultimately played out in Christ. As it says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of that that we can be free and forgiven. And so I pray today that you would just pray that God would cleanse your heart, cleanse your soul, 
that he would renew a right spirit within you uh, and that he might cause your life to be a testimony of his goodness to the to people around you let's pray heavenly father thank you for jesus thank you for his life thank you for his death thank you for his resurrection thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us may we within our sin come to you fully trusting the the sacrifice of your son to be sufficient to cleanse us and to wash us and to blot out all of our transgressions that our guilt and our shame would be removed that we no longer need to remain there God but that your constant presence the presence of your spirit would constantly be restoring us and renewing us and giving us a willing spirit a right heart um, to worship you and to serve you and to minister to people around us from a place of humility. Um, And so, Lord, thank you for that gift that you give us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.